It's time now for today's edition of Community Conversations. It's the interview program in which we dialogue with voices from the Omaha community. And here's your host for Community Conversations. Let's welcome Cammie Carlisle. Hello and welcome to another edition of Community Conversations. I'm Cammie Carlisle and today we have Demetrio Aguila, Dr. Demetrio Aguila in the studio. Welcome. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a lot to cover in a short time. You're a very interesting person. Before we get too far into all of the wonderful things that you offer, tell us a little bit about your background and how you even became a doctor. Sure. So I, uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me and uh, I'm excited to, to kind of share our story here. So I am the son of Filipino immigrants. My father was recruited to the United States uh, as a physician at a time when the United States had uh, a special visa immigration program uh, for physicians and nurses and such um, because he was in a He's now retired. He was in a specialty, which at the time was brand new, and uh, the United States was very much looking for people in his area of expertise. Um, and so fast forward, I, you know, I grew up seeing my dad. My mom, uh, who is trained as an attorney, raised, uh, raised us and also ran his practice, and my dad saw the patients. Uh, and so I started in healthcare actually at the age of 10. Um, not as some kind of Doogie Hauser or anything like that, but you know, I started out scrubbing toilets and emptying trash cans. That's what I did in my dad's practice because uh, he wanted to keep me busy and he wanted, to, which obviously would keep me out of trouble uh, and also teach me some degree of responsibility. And then over the years, I worked my way through every job there was in the practice up until I graduated from high school, at which point the only thing I hadn't done in the practice was actually be a doctor. Um, and so then uh, I got accepted into Boston University's combined BA MD program uh, in which as a senior in high school, as I was, I was accepted early to medical school. Wow. Uh, and so then I went to Boston University for, uh, for college and med school. Uh, and uh, I joined the Air Force my senior year in college and convinced them to, to pay my way through med school. And then um, I spent uh, almost 22 years of my life in uniform uh, serving Thank our great you. nation. Uh, and through that, the, the Air Force offered me all kinds of opportunities. I started out as a, uh, as a flight surgeon, um, in F-16s and then eventually in combat rescue helicopters. So went from fighters into helicopters. Uh, I also got my head and neck surgery and ear, nose and throat surgery training through the Air Force at Mount Sinai in, in okay. Manhattan. Uh, and then, uh, went on and became a plastic and reconstructive surgeon, whole body, uh, head to toe. Uh, and that was at Johns Hopkins and the University of Maryland, again, uh, with the help of the Air Force. And then I went on to do my peripheral nerve surgery uh, fellowship training at the Dellen Institutes for Peripheral Nerve Surgery in Las Vegas. It sounds like you are not one to be idle ever. <laughs> no, generally not. As a matter of fact, uh, people are like, oh, so you're done now? Well, actually, I'm working on a graduate degree right now in uh, in theology, and I'm hopeful to be done with that. Uh, I'm hopeful to graduate a year from now. So, And so you took all of this, and now you have your own practice, Healing Hands in Nebraska. Right. That's exactly right. So I was reading up, and so you offer peripheral nurse, nerve surgery, allergy ENT treatments, uh, let's see, nasal surgery, throat, throat surgery, carpal tunnel. These all seem like radically different things, but are they really? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And and so, I mean, when you take a look at my background, it's, it's obvious how all these things fit together. So, you know, all the ear, nose, and throat surgery stuff, that's obviously an extension of uh, and a result of the training that I got at Mount Sinai. Um, a lot of people don't realize, you know, when it comes to trigger finger surgery and carpal tunnel surgery, uh, that's, that's all hand surgery, right? But mm-hmm. a lot of people don't understand that hand surgery was originally a subspecialty of plastic surgery, right? Now, po- most people think of plastic surgery and they think, oh, well, you know, that means putting plastic into people's bodies. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that, you know, like so many other things in medicine, terms come from Greek and Latin, right? And right. The, in the case of plastic surgery, it comes from the Greek word plastikos, which refers to something whose form or shape can be changed or molded. That's how we came up with plastics. These are things that we can, sh- you know, mold into different shapes. Um, but the original idea came from being able to take something and then reshape it. Uh, now, a lot of people think of cosmetic surgery in that case, but most of what we do is reconstructive surgery. So for instance, somebody who comes in and let's say they're, you know, they had breast cancer and they had to have a mastectomy. Well, who does the reconstruction? It's not a general surgeon that does that. It's a plastic right. surgeon who does the reconstruction. Or, you know, in my particular area of interest when it comes to reconstruction is head and neck reconstruction because we did a lot of that in my ENT training. And then, so becoming a plastic surgeon was a natural extension of the head and neck reconstruction. So somebody has a big tumor in their jaw, we take out the tumor, we take out the jaw, we have to build them a new jaw. And so that's what we do as plastic surgeons. And so hand surgery uh, is an extension of plastic surgery in that, you know, in the hand, you have really delicate structures. And as a reconstructive microsurgeon, which is what every plastic surgeon is, we have a lot of training and expertise in dealing with really small, delicate structures. Uh, and so hand surgery began as a natural extension of working on tendons and working on small blood vessels and nerves and, and other structures like that, stuff that no other surgeon really had any experience or training in. Over time, it then uh, grew to encompass also orthopedic surgeons. And in some cases, uh, you find neurosurgeons who are hand surgeons as well. And there's a small number of general surgeons that are hand surgeons. So I was reading on your website about the carpal tunnel. Sure. It sounds like you do stuff radically different than, because I need some carpal tunnel surgery. Sure, sure. So well, you know where to find like us. I do. And it sounds <laughs> like your way is way better than the other ways. Can you tell us what sets it apart from the normal carpal tunnel? Sure. Please? Sure. So when we think about carpal tunnel surgery, you know, first we have to think about exactly what carpal tunnel syndrome is, because that's what we're treating with carpal tunnel surgery. And it's really pretty simple. There's a nerve that runs through the hand right here, okay, and then there's a ligament that goes that sits across the nerve. Now in most people, that's that's all there is to it, right? But in a small percentage of people, what ends up happening is for whatever reason that ligament is squeezing on that nerve. Mm-hmm. Uh, either there's too much stuff in the space, in the tunnel that the nerve and tendons are running through, uh, or the nerve is swollen or other structures in there are swollen or whatever, the, the nerve isn't working properly because there's too much pressure on it. Wow. So there's a number of different ways you could treat that. Non-surgically, hand therapy is one, non-steroidal anti- anti-inflammatory drugs like uh, like ibuprofen or naproxen, that's another way. Um, you can do injections of steroids into the carpal tunnel to decrease inflammation. If those things fail, then we talk about surgery. And the concept between sur- behind surgery is pretty simple. You have a nerve that's being squeezed by the ligament. Well, you can either make the nerve smaller, which is what you try to do with all the non-surgical treatments. And if you can't make the nerve smaller, then you make the space bigger. That's really all there is to it. And so in conventional carpal tunnel surgery, you make an incision about that big. 
Right. Okay. You open up the skin, you open up the tissue underneath the skin, you open up the, um, you open up the, uh, the palmar fascia, and then eventually you get down to this ligament that's squeezing on the nerve. And then you open up the ligament, and then you gotta put stitches in in order to close it up. So you end up with an incision about that big, a scar that's about that big, mm-hmm. and about six weeks of, uh, of recovery before you can get back to most of your regular activities, right? That's the standard, the conventional way to do carpal tunnel surgery. More recently, and I was trained in this also, uh, was the advent of endoscopic carpal tunnel surgery, right? And so in endoscopic carpal tunnel surgery, instead of uh, making an incision this big where you cut from the outside in, uh-huh. you make a small incision across the wrist, typically right about here, maybe about that long, and you put in a telescope, okay? Well, and you use okay. a telescope to get underneath the ligament, and then you cut from the inside out. So then you're only cutting the structures that are absolutely necessary to cut. Okay, so that was a nice advance in uh, in carpal tunnel surgery, and that was one of the things I was trained on uh, early on. And patients generally get back to work sooner than, with that, in about half the time. So instead of, you know, six weeks before they're back to regular activities, then it's three weeks. Instead of, you know, four weeks to get back to work in some capacity, it's about two weeks. These are national averages. Mm-hmm. But you know, it occurred to me, and really it occurred to Dr. Jay Smith, who invented this third option of ultrasound-guided carpal tunnel surgery, that there were some drawbacks to both of those uh, other approaches that I mentioned. And so when we think about um, endoscopic carpal tunnel surgery, the advantage is that you're cutting only the structures that need to be cut. The major disadvantage is that you don't see any of the other critical structures that you're trying to avoid mm. unless you've already injured them. Ah, That's it. bad. Okay. So you see, you put all this stuff in and you're like, okay, none of the stuff that's important should get in the way. So I'm just going to hope that it's not going to get injured. And, you know, I think we can all agree hope is not a good plan, right? Right. Right. It's not a good way to do surgery. And admittedly, the complication rate with that approach is very, very low. Okay. So it's generally safe, but why, why do it that way? If you could do it even safer than that. And so the way that we do it is with an even smaller incision. And then rather than using a telescope, I use an ultrasound from the outside. I can see all the structures that I'm trying to avoid injuring and at the same time cut only the structures that absolutely need to be cut. And so what do we end up with? Number one, we end up with a procedure that's safer. Number two, we end up with a procedure which has a tiny incision. I mean, we're talking about an incision that's smaller than the end of my pen. Wow. Okay. And then, and then patients are generally back to work, not uh, in four weeks, not in two weeks, but in one to two days. And they're back to their regular activities without, without restriction on average, according to the data that we've gathered in, in less than, in less than 47 hours. Wow. That's on average. Sold. I'm coming to see you. Yeah. And so one of the other advantages, we do this under local anesthesia in the office. And so we have farmers and ranchers that come in, they'll come in over their lunch break. We'll do their carpal tunnel surgery and then, you know, they're, they're back out in the combine that afternoon. That's amazing. I don't know why all the other doctors don't do that, but now we know who does. So Right. Well, and there's about 40 of us in the country that are doing this. And the main reason that it hasn't gained, there are two main reasons that it hasn't gained uh, greater greater usage just yet. Number one, it's relatively new. Okay. So obviously when you have something that's new, it takes a little while to catch on. I mean, think about the iPhone, for instance, when it first came out, everybody laughed. They're like, that's crazy. Who's going to use their phone to take pictures? Right. Well, I mean, here we are. yeah, exactly. You see where we are today. Right. And that wasn't that long ago. Um, so that's number one. But number two, uh, as many people know, there, there are a number of challenges that we face in how 
people get paid for the work they do in healthcare. Right. And, um, and there are a lot of different hoops that people have to jump through. And the incentives are not structured properly in order to make doing this procedure easy for most people. Um, and one of the advantages that we have in our practice is that by not having any insurance contracts, the relationship we have isn't with the insurance company. The relationship we have is with the patient. And so we can talk to the patient directly about exactly what things are going to cost. <clears throat> and when you take into account the fact that we can do this procedure in the office under local anesthesia, so you don't have to pay a hospital fee or a surgery center fee. It's under local anesthesia, meaning you're wide awake, so you don't have to pay an anesthesiologist or a CRNA, which means the only fee you have to pay for is my fee plus the cost of the supplies. Typically... You know, if we talk about carpal tunnel surgery, on average, uh, if you take a look at the numbers nationwide, for one hand, mm-hmm. okay, right, uh, the average cost for a carpal tunnel procedure is anywhere from thirteen to twenty thousand dollars. Okay, yeah. that's all inclusive. Now, you may say to yourself, "Well, you know, my insurance covers some of that." Well, yeah, they cover some of that, right? Okay, mm-hmm. um, but when you take into account your deductible, okay, so the average deductible for a family of four in the United States is seventy five hundred dollars. Okay, so that's seventy five hundred dollars of that thirteen thousand that you have to cover yourself, or you know, and then beyond that, most people have to pay twenty percent of whatever comes after that. So you're looking at somewhere around eight or nine thousand dollars for a procedure on one hand that is going to require six weeks before you can get back to work. Okay, you come into our office, and because we can have this conversation. Oh, and by the way, you don't find out any of those costs anywhere else until six months after the fact, and then you're like, well, wait a minute. You know, I didn't know it was going to cost this much. Wow. You come into our office before we even do anything. You know exactly what it's going to cost you down to the penny. And we can do both hands at the same time. And you're back to work the very next day for less money than your deductible. I love it. That's amazing. You are a well-kept secret. And we are spreading the word right now. Well, I appreciate That's it. Amazing. So with that being said, I know that you offer several other programs, too, to folks. Yes. Uh, Operation Warriors Hope. Tell us about that. That's amazing. Sure. So Operation Warriors Hope, uh, and thank you for asking about that. Operation Warriors Hope is it's the culmination of a dream of mine that I've had, you know, in some form or another ever since I was a little kid. Okay. You know, my grandfather uh, was a captain in the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and uh, and he served under General MacArthur during the invasion of the Philippines. And he was one of the people that was captured and forced on the Bataan Death March. Uh, he happened to be one of the survivors, but he was a POW. He was tortured. He saw many of his you know friends and 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 fellow soldiers uh, beheaded and 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 killed in in the course of this march. And I remember he didn't like to talk much about the war, as you might understand. But, um, you know, he, he said, look, he said, it's important to serve your country. It's, in, it's important to defend the things that you love and the things that are important to you. And, you know, one of the proudest and, and most beautiful days of his life was the day he became an American citizen. I was there for that when, when, he, got to, when he got to become an American. And, and he said, now I get to be one of the people that stood up for me and came back to help me. Mm-hmm. I get to do that for other people now as an American, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so ever since I was a little kid, I, I always recognized that there's, there's a great gift that we've been given by the people in our armed forces, anybody that's ever worn the uniform. And 
I wanted to honor that gift, and that's why I put it on the uniform. Because for me, that was a privilege to be able to work side by side with Wonder Man, Wonder Woman, and Superman. I mean, who wouldn't who wouldn't do that if they had the opportunity, you know? And so I got to work with my heroes. I got to take care of my heroes, uh, and I got to say thank you to them to make sure that their sacrifices hadn't been made in vain. Uh, and so when I when I hung up my uniform for the last time, which you know, admittedly was one of the hardest days of my entire life, because it. I had spent pretty much my entire adult life in uniform up until uh, 2014. Um, and, and so that was really tough for me. And I was looking for a way to get back into the fight, so to speak, to get back into the mission, to take care of my brothers and sisters. And so Operation Warrior's Hope is the culmination of a promise that I make to my fellow brothers and sisters in uniform who have a purple heart. If you've received a purple heart, if you've been wounded in combat, that I make this promise to you. If there's a medical problem that you have that I know how to take care of, mm-hmm. I will take care of it for you till the day I die. And you won't owe me one penny ever. Because the day that you spilled your blood, the day that you made that sacrifice so that my family wouldn't have to, was the day that your bill to me was paid in full. That is the essence of Operation Warrior's Hope. That is beautiful. You just gave me goosebumps. That's beautiful. That is such a, that's just so kind and generous and wonderful. I mean, from my standpoint, it's, it's the right thing to do. You know, I mean, so as a veteran myself, I know how there are challenges in, in, in healthcare. There are challenges in getting the care that we need and seeing who we need to see uh, for any of a number of different reasons. And I said, you know what? There's a lot of bureaucratic red tape that can sometimes stand in the way of taking care of people that need care. Uh, I've seen it. I've been, you know, I've been on the receiving end of that myself as a veteran, and I've tried to take care of a lot of people. And I said, you know what? If you guys have bigger fish to fry, then I'm just going to fry the fish myself. You know, this is between me and, and my brother or sister who has that purple heart. This is the promise I make to you. I will find a way to make it happen because it's important to me. That's amazing. How many folks have taken you up on this? So right now we've got three or four people that are in various stages of, of, of working their way through the process. Um, we haven't done any surgery on anybody yet um, because the program is relatively new. We launched it on Veterans Day this past year. So, oh, wow. um, and, and one of the things we're looking for right now, so we formed a, a, a nonprofit, Healing Hands of America, to support the Operation Warriors Hope as well as the M25 program. And so it's a 501c3 uh, Donations are tax deductible, and we're looking for donations to uh, to Healing Hands of America to support these programs, to support these people that that we want to help. Um, and and you know any any help that your your viewers and listeners can lend. Whether you know, I mean, yes, would we love a five million dollar donation to help support these programs? Absolutely. But if there's somebody out there that's like, well, I don't have five million dollars, but I got ten bucks. You know, every little bit counts. It really does. Uh, And and most importantly, what I would ask everybody to do, regardless of what kind of donation you want to make or you're able to make, I'd ask you to pray for us. Pray for us and also spread the word. Um, Because my intention in both of these programs is to inspire other doctors to start to think outside the box, to throw the box away. Because I believe that as, as healthcare professionals, we physicians here in the United States are some of the smartest people on the planet. And as a group of people together, we can solve almost any problem there is. And so the fact that 
the, the fact that we have these healthcare finance problems today, I don't think it's a function of the complexity of the problem. I think it's more a function of the fact that we as physicians have not given ourselves permission to think outside the box and to do what needs to be done, to find innovative ways, ways that are well-tailored to the individuals that are sitting in front of us to be able to take care of them. That is the challenge that we face. And if these programs can inspire other doctors to throw off the shackles of their fear and go and make a better way that serves their patient population better, then let's do it. Let's do it because we can make a difference. Oh, my gosh, I love that. I want to go to all my doctors right now and say, listen to this. Why don't you try this? Sure. That would change the whole face of America. It would. I mean, it I would. look at the rest of the world, and I just am always have wondered, like, why is our health care just such a hot mess here where everybody else can just walk in and get treatment? We're here. It's such a mess. Like you said, even if you have insurance, you're still stuck with a humongous bill. That's exactly right. So if you think about this for a second, okay, so in 2018, uh, roughly roughly one-third of – let me make sure I get the right the, – the numbers right. Roughly – no, it's roughly, uh, roughly two-thirds of all individual bankruptcies in the United States were due to medical debt. Okay, now that probably doesn't surprise a lot of your viewers and listeners, okay, that two-thirds of all individual um, – bankruptcies were due to medical debt. But what most people do find surprising is that of those people who went bankrupt due to medical debt, three-fourths of them had insurance. Yes. yes. Okay? Three-fourths of them had insurance. So is insurance a safeguard against medical bankruptcy? The answer is no. Okay. And so is throwing more money at the problem yeah. going to fix the problem? No. The answer is no. What we need to do is find a different way, yeah. not a bigger way, but a smarter way. Exactly. And, and for, the po- for the patient population that we serve, that's the reason that the M25 program came into existence. And that's how we answer that question. Now, does that necessarily mean that the M25 program is the answer for every practice and every patient? Maybe, maybe not. But we found that, you know, by, by again, thinking outside the box, we said, let's take this, let, let's take an idea and let's serve the population that we take care of in a way that makes sense for them, in a way that's fair to the patient and that's fair to us. I get that completely. Now, you did talk a little bit about the M25 program, but let's elaborate just a bit. We have about five minutes left. Sure. But the M25 is different from Operation Warrior's Hope. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay, so tell us how M25 works exactly. Sure. So the M25 program is based on Matthew chapter 25 uh, in, in the Bible, in the gospel there. And, you know, and, and the, the key verse is verse 40. And Jesus, he's talking to all these people and, and they're like, you know, you know, well, what, what are you talking about? And he says, amen, amen, I say to you, these things you did for the least of my brothers, you did for me. Okay. And so the idea is that we're going to try to help each other. Now, through the M25 program, we don't charge patients a single penny, okay? Uh, not a single penny, but that doesn't mean that it's free, okay? And that's important to understand because what we're asking patients to do through the M25 program is to invest in themselves. Now, what am I talking about here? So let's say, for instance, let's talk about the carpal tunnel surgery, right? So let's say you needed carpal tunnel surgery and I could tell you, okay, your carpal tunnel surgery is going to cost X number of dollars and that's, you know, one-fourth of what it would cost anywhere else, which is great, right? But you say to me, doc, I don't have... X number of dollars, you know, so you, do you just hate poor people? Is that it? You just hate the poor people? I'm like, no, no, no. Okay. I can do your surgery for free, right? right? But what do we know about 
what the average American, how the average American values something they get for nothing. How much do they value it? Uh, about that much, right? right? Okay. And so it's the M25 program isn't about, and the problem that we face isn't about money. It's not about whether or not somebody can pay for it. It's how do you get somebody who has no money to invest in themselves? Because we've seen study after study has demonstrated that patients who are invested in their outcomes get better outcomes. And so for me as a surgeon, I'm a perfectionist. I want everything to be perfect. I want my patients to have the best result possible. And so if I know that having skin in the game, so to speak, is one of the greatest tools for their success, why would I start by taking that away from them? Okay. That'd be like saying to an Olympic marathoner, oh, by the way, you know what? You're going to the Olympics and we want you to do really, really well. But you know, there's this burden you have that's weighing you down. It's your right leg. So we're just going to cut off your right leg so that you're lighter and so that you can do this race and you have to carry less weight. Who would volunteer for that? Exactly. But that's what we do by telling patients, look, let's make it free. They don't get to invest in themselves, okay? We see this in orthopedic surgery. Patients have to undergo physical therapy for X number of weeks before they can have their knee replaced. We see it in bariatric surgery. You know, before somebody can have weight reduction surgery, they have to go see a psychiatrist and go, run through all these steps to invest in their outcome, and that's how we get better outcomes, right? Exactly. So how do we do this in the M25 program? So what I do is I say to you, okay, you want to do this surgery. This is what I'm going to have you do. I'm going to have you call up one of our nonprofit partners, okay, partner in the loosest sense of the word. We have no financial relationship whatsoever, okay? And I tell them, you know, I'm going to have this patient come over and see you. She comes and you, you go and you see them, and they're like, all right, let's call up the doc. And they call me up, doc, what do you need? And I say, okay, for this procedure, X number of hours, let's say 500 hours. Mm-hmm. They're like, okay, doc says you need to volunteer 500 hours at our nonprofit here, you know, whether it's serving the hungry or helping build houses for the poor or whatever. Um, and when you're done with that, they call me up and they say, doc, she's done. Send her over. We'll do her surgery. No charge. Wow. Okay, so what have we accomplished? Number one, you got the care you needed. Number two, did you incur any medical debt? Say no. The answer is no, right? Okay. Number three. You are invested in your outcome. Okay, you got skinny game. You're thinking to yourself in the back of your mind, and maybe at the front of your mind, well, you know what? I better not mess this up. I better listen to the doctor because if I screw it up and I need more surgery, well, then I got to go volunteer 500 more hours, right? So, and then uh, on top of that, you have the, the the charity that you served with has benefited from your work. The community that the charity serves has benefited from your work. And regardless of how poor you may be, you've seen that there are other people who are worse off and you helped them. Well, what does that do for your dignity? What does that do for your self-worth? What does that do for your self-esteem? Okay. And then on top of all of that, my whole team gets to see with their own eyes mm-hmm. that they got to do medical mission work right in their own backyards. We didn't need to go to Zimbabwe or Timbuktu or Vietnam or Venezuela or wherever. We did it. Neighbors helping neighbors. I love it. Who loses? Nobody. Nobody. Who wins? Everyone. That's That's the essence of the M25 program. And then you might say, well, 500 hours, that's a lot of time. How can I do that? Well, guess what? You can recruit your friends and your your neighbors and and even people you've never met before. There are hundreds of people that we have who are itching to meet people they can volunteer for. Yep. People they can help. People they can invest in. And so when that person comes, so, you know, like – 
somebody could write you a check for $5,000, right? And they say, here, here's your $5,000 for your surgery. And you're like, that's great. You know, and that, and, and it's nice to not have the debt. But what carries more weight for you as the patient? For that person to write the check for $5,000 or for a hundred people to look you in the eye, shake your hand and say, I am investing my blood, sweat and tears in you. Right. Okay. I don't know how many patients have come to me and told me, doc, I feel so alone. I'm facing this problem all by myself and I don't know how I'm going to deal with this medical debt and the costs associated with the surgery. Well, guess what? We've addressed all of those things with the M25 program. Are any of these patients alone? Say no. No. Okay. And do they feel alone? No. No. They feel the weight of the support of all of these people, of all of their love. Okay. Because this, this is about this is about neighbors loving neighbors and this is how we do it. Okay. And then – on top of that, there's a moral authority that comes with that because when that person looks you in the eye, shakes your hand and says, I'm investing in you, there's an implication there. Don't screw this up so that my investment isn't wasted. And so the patient feels the responsibility of doing well, not just for themselves, but for all the sacrifices that everybody else has made for them. And you see a common thread here. You see a common thread between the M25 program and Operation Warrior's Hope, and it's the thread of sacrifice. Sacrifice. That's the one thing that we in our American society don't want to talk about anymore is sacrifice. But I am convinced that if we can capture the essence of sacrifice out of love, we can fix so many of the problems that we're facing today. And we can find solutions to problems that we didn't even realize were sitting right there under our noses. So can you tell us before we go where we can find you in Nebraska? Sure. We, our main office is in Papillion, Nebraska, uh, on the corner of, um, on the southwest corner of 72nd and Cornhusker. So just, just south of, uh, of Omaha. We're, we're located inside the Papillion Family Hospital. You can find us online. Just Google Healing Hands of Nebraska and, uh, we'll be happy to help. All right. Well, I'm so sad our time is up. I learned so much from you, and I'm sure all of our listeners did too. Thank you. It's been brilliant. Uh, that was Dr. Aguila from Healing Hands in Nebraska. I'm Cammie Carlisle. Thanks again for listening to Community Conversations on Radio Talking Book Service. You've been listening to Community Conversations on Radio Talking Book. It's the interview program that brings you voices from the Omaha community. The Radio Talking Book Network is brought to you with the cooperation of KIOS-FM in Omaha and statewide through the facilities of NET Radio and Television. We've been proudly serving our blind and visually impaired listeners for 46 years. Thank you for being a loyal Radio Talking Book listener and supporter.